Justin the Clue, I'm here today with Will Sloan, and you're listening to The Important Cinema Club, and today we're doing a very serious topic, and that is guys in gorilla suits. You know, there are many things that the director John Landis and I might disagree on. For example, the height at which you should fly a helicopter above an actor. However, there's one thing he said that's always stuck with me, which is that if a movie has a guy in a gorilla suit, it's automatically a good movie. I don't know if I can argue with that because the science proves that it's true. But watching many of the films that we picked this week, I'm like, oh boy. (laughs) Well, if they didn't have the man in the gorilla suit, Mm. possibly they wouldn't be very good. You know what I think the issue was with the films that we watched this week, which is we picked the gorilla-centric ones. What we need are comedies that suddenly a gorilla shows up you know, lifting our spirits. We're just happy to see one of our guys like Crash Corrigan on screen. But hey, in these bad movies, whenever the gorilla's on screen, are oh, you happy? It's the best. <laughs> so listen, Justin and I, when we see a gorilla, a man in a gorilla suit in a movie specifically, it's we're always really happy. And I think we're talking about a specific kind of gorilla suit. We're talking about movies from the 30s, the 40s, maybe even the 50s, oftentimes B-movies, Poverty Row movies, or uh, comedies. Now, I have something personal to share in this episode, which is I own a gorilla suit, I love the gorilla suit I own, and I use it as much as possible. (laughs) I actually have two, actually, fur suits. One of them that my partner Emily built herself that she, like, sewed together. It is incredibly hot, and it's tough to wear. And then one that I got at a dollar store that actually looks pretty nice with a really fancy gorilla mask she got me one uh, year during my birthday, where if you open the mouse, it moves. Mm, Perfect. Love using it in sketches. What is it about gorilla suits for you? I don't know, because it is not a child childhood nostalgia thing because I do not have those memories of watching like you know those real grimy public domain style black and white films that a gorilla would show up in like the ape man starring Bela Lugosi but it was at a certain point into my cinephilia that I started noticing gorilla suited performers and it it just it just tickles me in a odd way that's difficult to kind of grasp onto exactly. But I want to make an attempt because I do think it is the gorilla is a kind of force that we know it and seeing it in comedic situations, bumping up against the Three Stooges, there's something funny there because a gorilla is not inherently comedic. If anything, it is dangerous. So when you see a man in a gorilla suit in a horror movie from the 30s or 40s, uh, the level one reading is that it's kind of like so bad it's good. I can't believe it. Like, uh, they, they think that this is a gorilla, that people will believe this? Looks so fake. Come on, guys. And then there's another kind of movie. Again, Abbott and Costello, The Three Stooges, where... How how many scenes have there been where like uh, how many Three Stooges comedies have there been where the Stooges are detectives and they're on trail? We could even call them ditzy detectives, for example. <laughs> yes, uh, they're on the trail of a burglar who calls himself the gorilla and he burgles homes disguised as a gorilla. But who should Curly run up against? Oh, no, a real gorilla. <laughs> uh Oh, and he's like, hey, gosh, I got that. I can't do the Curly voice like I used to be able to. I got that. I got that villain. It's a real gorilla. Why I oughta. But then by the end of the short, Curly and the gorilla will be friends. Or like in Ditzy Detective, the gorilla is decapitated and Curly holds up his severed head. But don't worry, the gorilla head goes, and then they get scared and run away. I think there's a Shemp one where Shemp ends up being friends with the gorilla at the end. Because that's what we want, right? We want the gorillas 
to befriend the comedic characters, oftentimes taking on the villains. I don't want to see them in villainous roles in the Rumorg style, the murders of the Rumorg. Oh, sorry, spoiler alert. It's a gorilla that did it at the end. <laughs> in The Three Stooges, you look at the man in the gorilla suit and it's so fake that it's kind of funny and it adds to the fun. It's mm -hmm. like, we're all here, we're having a good time. It's obviously a fake gorilla, but this is not a movie meant to be taken seriously. But in both examples, in both the horror films and the comedies, I think the gorilla, the man in the gorilla suit is really representative of the magic of the movies. Because mm. whenever we go to see a movie, we are required to suspend our disbelief. Absolutely. Yeah, because we know that there are cuts. This did not happen simultaneously. We understand at a base level, even if we're not technically minded people, that movies are constructed. And the man in the gorilla suit really forces us to confront this. And there's also something so childish about the man in a gorilla well, suit. Well, it's like dinosaurs, right? Like gorillas, I feel, are like animals that children are attracted to because there's something powerful, especially kids who do not feel like they are in control gorillas are because they are big they are strong they represent like beasts yeah and seeing a man in a gorilla suit it feels like playing dress up it feels like like there's a man in that suit pretending to be a gorilla for god's sake i mean that's really silly and that's really fun you know what's interesting is that i'm always disappointed in the movies where it's revealed that the gorilla suited man is a gorilla suited man i agree <laughs> interesting there's yeah. like oh no but i want it to be a real gorilla within the reality of the movie <laughs> yeah and I, I think there's some there is some i mean it sounds silly but there does feel like some sort of betrayal because like you've given the movie the suspension of your disbelief you're like you know what i'm gonna have fun with this movie i'm gonna pretend that is a gorilla mm -hmm. and apes also are our closest relatives in the animal kingdom i've been told so there's already sort of un something uncanny when you go to the zoo and you see apes they act kind of like humans yes and there's that bit of recognition there so that's weird. <laughs> why are they in a cage so these movies tap into that by having the gorillas act you know like gorillas but then the fact that it's also a, a man in a gorilla suit adds the uncanny quality mm -hmm. like gorillas are already uncanny a man in a gorilla suit is uncanny uh movies are uncanny the man in a gorilla suit in movies especially like old-timey black and white films it's almost like like nudge, nudge, wink, wink. This is for the real fans. Like, this is what you like. It's about the magic of the movies. And it's just about performance and just buying into stuff. I just love it so much. Brings a smile to my face. And also, there was like a second generation of filmmakers. People like John Landis. Who mm, made Joe Dante. Yeah, yeah. Who would put men in gorilla suits in their films. Ray Dennis Steckler, who we did a podcast about, is another example. So, um, you know, we'll get into the guy that they all employed later. But they're all they're all very consciously they grew up on those black and white movies and they're all they all want to recreate that sense of fun but in a sort of uh jokey postmodern way i also think though in those movies that you mentioned it's done in kind of a loving way okay. as opposed to like look at this like um joke character yeah, which you it, sometimes it, see it's more like remember the fun we used to have as kids let's try to recreate that fun so we're not going to trace a long history of the man in the gorilla suit movies but it started in like the 1920s with the tarzan films where that's where you really have the men in gorilla suits making their first major appearance and then it continues and got so popular at a certain point in like the 40s and 50s to the point that one of those universal horror collections one of them is just only gorilla movies because there were so many that you could get into we should talk about some of the great gorilla suit actors because many of these people were employed 
consistently in movie after movie after movie because they owned their own gorilla suit. Yes. So when you hired somebody like Charles Gamora, you were hiring him because he had a good suit. He could perform in it, didn't complain. So you knew he could do it. <laughs> Who is Charles Gamora, you may ask? Well, he was the man in the gorilla suit in such films as Africa Screams, starring Abbott and Costello. Mm-hmm. Recently released in a remastered Blu-ray. Some other famous gorilla suit actors. We'll get to the big one in a sec, but there's Emil Van Horn. You've seen him in 1941's Jungle Girl. You've seen him in 1943's The Ape Man with Bela Lugosi. And he was known for having like a shitty gorilla suit, like taken off the rack Halloween one. But he was such a strong performer that people liked using him in their pictures. He's probably pretty cheap, too. I mean, his death scene in The Ape Man. Uh, how can you not cry? <laughs> the William Bodine, Bela Lugosi film. It's like Dino De Laurentiis said about his King Kong. You know, when Jaws die, nobody cry. But when Emil Van Horn die in The Ape Man, everybody cry. <laughs> Uh, you also have uh, more of a late period guy, but George Barrows was a gorilla suit guy. Well, in... he's great. I love George Barrows because he was in Gorilla at Large, mm -hmm. which you watched this week. I did. Great gorilla suit. Yeah. I saw Gorilla at Large some years ago at Toronto's dearly departed Trash Palace. I Rest saw in power. On, saw it on probably 16 millimeter film. Yes. It was probably red, full screen, <laughs> TV print. Uh, but listen, George Barrows has a place in history as having played Roman in 1953's classic robot monster. And you can really uh, enjoy his performance as the camera captures him from very far away as romance slowly walks. We should pause on this for a second because some people may not know what robot monster is. It is a film in which the villain is a space alien who is depicted as a gorilla with a diving helmet because the director of the film, Phil Tucker, he had access to George Barrows, but he clearly decided, well, the alien can't just be a gorilla. He's got to have a diving helmet, and too. And it does not have the awesome skull that you see on the poster for Robot Monster. Uh, for more, check out our Phil Tucker episode. And finally, we are coming to probably uh, the creme de la creme of gorilla suit actors. That during this period, he is the first name that most cinephiles associate uh, with the gorilla suit <laughs> most performer. Most cinephiles. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. All cinephiles associate That's with him. That's right. It's Ray Crash Corrigan. Now, Ray Crash Corrigan had a rich Hollywood career. He was a star in West westerns he played henchmen in all sorts of movies he starred in serials i believe undersea kingdom what's funny is that his nickname crash is not even from being in the movies it's actually from his football career where he picked it up but he also had a gorilla suit and so a he, good one too yeah uh, i mean i think he's just the generally accepted best gorilla even though that i saw an interview with bob burns in a documentary that we both watched uh, men in suits and they mentioned that crash wasn't someone that like would mimic a gorilla very specifically but he was great at like pounding his chest and acting kind of like the aggressive gorilla. Well, I was watching that documentary very compelled at what they said about the art and craft of gorilla acting. Well, I was going to say that like suit performing though is very important and that like the different person in the suit can bring a completely different personality to the monsters which you may not associate because you're like well anybody can do that right just wave their arms in the air that's not so I hard. found that documentary called Men in Suits a little defensive in a way that I found a touch off-putting well I think that it was mostly from the performers themselves when they were talking about that they were a disposable commodity in the eyes of most production they all kept saying over and over again you know it's real acting yes. you know people think it's not real acting. but they even say that like they for a while didn't hire suit performers they would just put a stuntman in the suit and that would be that 
And like you wouldn't use somebody like Tom Woodruff Jr., who's always played the alien. You just get some other dude to do well, it. Well, it was very interesting hearing Bob Burns talk about his own gorilla suit acting. Bob Burns is a Hollywood character, a, a collector, a, a self-described monster kid, a second generation gorilla suit actor. Mm-hmm. He acted on a TV show called The Ghostbusters, as well as in the Ray Dennis Steckler films. And he, in the documentary, says that, you know, he would watch those man in gorilla suit movies growing up and he decided he wanted to be a man in a gorilla suit. And unfortunately, Bob Burns was at a period that the movies were not um, hungry for gorilla suited actors. But you know what was? Television. For like a stretch, if there was a gorilla that appeared on like a talk show, that was Bob Burns in his gorilla suit. That's right. And he talks in that documentary quite well about how it's all in the eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, like Bob Burns' eyes were visible in the suit, like Buster Keaton. He would do so much with those eyes that he people would swear. I, I thought I saw that gorilla's eyes or, or a brow furrow. Mm-hmm. And they're like, nope, that is a static face. Maybe the mouse moves. But it also depends on how the gorilla is kind of molded, right? Because you get different looking ones. Like we mentioned um, Charles Gamora. He had a very kind of like long face gorilla suit. I'm a big fan of like the little eyes ones. <laughs> like that race Crash Corgan suit was kind of like that, which you see in, uh, you know, the important cinema club the cinematic classic Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. That's him in that one. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. I mean, there's a lot of competition, but that may be my favorite gorilla suit movie. I especially like the scene. You know, there's the, there's a plot in that movie for people who don't know that film. And how could you not? Uh, that's a movie that stars a Martin and Lewis ripoff duo called Duke Mitchell and Sammy Petrillo. And halfway through the movie, Bella Lugosi turns Duke Mitchell into a gorilla and has one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema when Duke as the gorilla is trying to convince Sammy that he's Duke and he starts singing his trademark theme song but he does it in a gorilla voice <laughs> Crash was doing that I, I was wondering that this week uh, you know what somebody like Tom Weaver would know something like that but hey let's get back to Ray Crash Corrigan because he is you know the Olivier of gorilla suit actors mm-hmm. I think we both sampled his work this week we both watched a 1940 Poverty Row classic called The Ape starring Boris Karloff. And um, it's one of Boris Karloff's sillier movies, one of his more impoverished movies. Boris Karloff plays a seemingly kindly doctor who uh, wants to cure polio. And he's got this this girl that he's working on, thinks he can cure her polio, make her walk. But what he needs is fluid from the spinal columns of human beings. Now, this is a film that is fairly dry. I was shocked to see it was made in 1940 because it has that white zombie airlessness to it, like no music. And looking at the director's credits, it's all Poverty Row stuff, like Charlie Chan mysteries and things like that. Yeah, his name is William Nye and... I mean, he made a lot of stuff with Boris Karloff, a lot of the Mr. Wong That's series. That's what I was thinking of, the Mr. Wong series. He also made one of Bela Lugosi's worst movies, Black Dragons. But, I mean, he was a guy who started in the silent era. So, like, he was in Charlie Chaplin movies, like, the really early ones as an actor. Mm-hmm. So he was a guy that just kind of hung around, William Bodinish, And you feel his heart's not that in it. But anytime the gorilla shows up in this movie, the movie takes off. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a gorilla who's going around killing people and then... In the shocking twist, <sighs> you find out that the gorilla was Boris Karloff in a suit all along. Boo! Disappointing. But I don't know. I kind of like this. I like this a bit more than you do. I react like a child to these movies when they reveal <laughs> that it's a human inside. Like, no, don't give me that Scooby-Doo ending. I thought the movie was paced reasonably well. Mm. and Isn't uh, it like only like an hour, 70 it, minutes? It's, it's 62 minutes. Yeah. A lot of like uh, Boris Karloff being
being a scientist stuff and trying to prove his theories. He, Boris Karloff seems so old in this, doesn't mm, he? He yeah. does. But there's more gorilla than there is in a lot of the movies we watch this week. That's right. Because we also checked out stuff like the Edward Dimitrik film, Captured Wild Women. Yes. So that is a lesser universal horror movie. Uh, it was a B-movie from the 1940s. And this one stars John Carradine as a mad scientist who believes that he can transform a female gorilla into a human woman. But to do this requires killing an actual human woman. But uh, he does that. And I mean, that's basically the plot. There's some shenanigans with the circus. Yeah, all these like uh, gorilla films often, especially the universal ones, have circus related plots because like, where else are you going to find a gorilla? That's where it would be in a cage. Oh, it's so talky. Uh, so these universal B movies from the 40s, I actually kind of like. A, actually, I don't know if I can defend this, but I like them right now a little bit less than I like some of the Poverty Row horror movies. I agree with you. Which I'm not saying the Poverty Row ones are, aren't are boring because yes. they are. But they have their own atmosphere yeah. that the Universal ones don't have because there's you know, a well-oiled machine behind them. It's the difference between something being kind of like weird because it didn't have the money and something on rails, which is more boring to watch. Exactly. I also revisited a classic film written by Edward D. Wood Jr. called The Bride and the Beast. And this one, again, stars Ray Crash Corrigan. In, I mean, it has to. They're all crash joints. In one of his finest performances, I would say. This is the story of a couple who are honeymooning. And uh, on their honeymoon, the woman, played by Charlotte Austin, sees a gorilla in a cage, played by Ray Crash Corrigan. And she feels a strange attraction to this gorilla. And the two of them, they like, they reach their hands out at each other and and, and there's there's an understanding between the two of them. And as the film goes on, we find out that Charlotte Austin was once a gorilla in a, in a previous <laughs> life. And that's why she has this sexual attraction. I've to never gorillas. seen this movie. So it sounds like there's a lot of gorilla content. In there's it. more than the usual amount of gorilla content. It ends with the gorilla triumphantly carrying Charlotte Austin across the threshold into the cave. Oh, no. Uh, presumably to have sex with her. And, I mean, this movie, Edward didn't direct it. He just wrote it. I think it would be better if Edward directed it. It's a little slow. It's a little talky at times. But what I love, one of the many things I love about Edward is his interest in going to that uh, weird territory uh, the the sexual boundaries, mm -hmm. um, sexual aberrations. I definitely sense that his heart was in this. I mean, when you talk about the appearance of gorillas in Poverty Row films, I think they were so prevalent because they were such a cheap special effect. You hired the guy that had the suit. Like you didn't have to get a makeup designer to spend seven hours like Jack Pierce, like doing the Frankenstein makeup on Karloff every day. Yeah. You just had a dude. He was in a hairy suit. He sweated throughout the day, but he did it because he was used to it. So that's why they appear over and over and over again in all of these films. We did want to check out a more modern, a modern-ish gorilla suit movie to see how the art and craft had evolved. So we decided to revisit 1995's Congo. And so Congo was a movie that I recalled seeing as a kid, and I remember not liking it. And I we came back to it today going, you know what? Maybe I didn't know what I was talking about. We've got galaxy brains now because we can appreciate men in gorilla suits. Or even women in gorilla suits, which is the case with this one. How about the cast of this oh, movie? so good. You got Tim Curry. You got uh, Joe Don Baker. You got Ernie Hudson. You got Bruce Campbell. Mm. Uh, tons of Joe Pantaleone. Uh, oh, yeah. Showing up very briefly. <laughs> uh, many others that John I'm John Hawks showing up uh, for... 
10 seconds before dying of gorilla induced uh, terror. Uh, my God, Laura Linney is one of the leads. And this film is so boring. <laughs> like, yeah. It bummed me out. Like Frank Marshall just asleep at the switch. And what is clearly supposed to be a throwback to the, um, you know, very colonialist racist movies of jungle adventure stuff. Frank Marshall produced the Indiana Jones yeah. movies. And it's trying to do a little bit of that, a little bit of Jurassic Park. But yeah, doing doing that for jungle adventure. Like you didn't even mention the name of the lead because who cares? He sucks. Yeah, it's Dylan something or other. Yeah. Yeah, he really does suck. And I don't know. I didn't hate the movie. I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, you wouldn't watch it again. I might have said that too quickly. I just want to emphasize I did not enjoy this film. Even though like every scene I was sitting there like arms crossed being like, I should like this. Well, I I had the exact same feeling because the movie, which is written by John Patrick Shanley, the Pulitzer winning playwright <laughs> based on the Michael Crichton novel, the climate <laughs> denialist himself. But everybody involved are, are, are very smart people. And clearly they got together and wanted to do kind of a camp thing. They mm. wanted to have fun. And every scene has those camp elements in place. When Tim Curry shows up for the first time, doing a Borat voice, doing a Borat voice. And you know, he's, he's playing the Peter Laurie role basically. Mm. And when Jodan Baker shows up and he is such a ham, oh, such a, I mean, everyone's trying to ham themselves off the screen. I here. mean, uh, Ernie Hudson has a British accent and he's kind of suave. He's kind of Clark Gable-ish. I like <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. Every scene looks like it should be fun, but it just moves at such a dreary pace. pace. Yeah. And even when like the action set pieces happen, it's just like uncommitted, very TV like is what I felt. Yeah, it makes you appreciate Spielberg more, doesn't mm-hmm. it? You know, Ra- Raiders of the Lost Ark has so much more of a pulse. Which is than this. weird because uh, Frank Marshall did a big Spielberg imitation in Arachnophobia. And I guess after I don't think that was a big success. He's like, all right, just going to phone it in now. Not going to try too hard. Yeah. So what about the gorilla in this movie, though? Well, the gorilla's name is Amy, played by a gymnast named Misty Rosas, um, who uh, I learned in the documentary took training from John Alexander, who played uh, one of the one of the main gorillas in Gorillas in the Mist, which we did not watch this week because it looked boring. Um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, Will (laughs) said, can we please watch something else? Like, I'm a Congo. He's like, yeah, that'll be fun. (laughs) No, not really. (laughs) I'd probably still more fun than Girls in the Mist. Uh, But yeah, Amy in the movie modeled, I think, after Coco, the famous talking gorilla. Yeah. Amy, you know, talks through some sort of a program in a very rudimentary way. Also drinks a martini at one point. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I like all that stuff. I don't like, I don't know. Too realistic for me. Yeah. Okay. I (laughs) couldn't agree more. It is too realistic. It's too realistic, but it's also not realistic enough. Yes. You you know what I mean? Like what would be realistic enough though? Right? Like you want some stylization to your gorilla. I kind of like in the recent planet of the apes movies, Mm -hmm. the way that it's that Andy circus motion capture, because Andy circus through the motion captures, able to actually give sort of a performance mm, with the help of the special effects artists right w- with yeah a lot of help yeah. but you know you're able to see him kind of act and you don't get to see misty rosas act in the same way mm. and there's also not that fun disconnect of the fact that it looks fake yeah because there's like all the servos and their mouths moving and stuff like and like eyes blinking you would accept that it's a real gorilla from a distance i think it could still work i think i accepted it when i was a kid mm-hmm. and i mean i really like the evil gorillas that show up but not enough of them i, I also think that final action set piece isn't is disappointing you oh know? super disappointing i remember being disappointed as a child where i was like i don't know what's going on why is the volcano erupting how come a character has a laser now should be fun though a yeah, lot of gorillas big set 
Yeah. Like characters, you know what? It almost feels like they were going to do an R rating and they cut it down to a PG-13 and they lost a lot of the good stuff. Like Tim Curry's killed off screen. You can kind of tell because they do some of that like slow motion stuff, which is clearly a way to extend the scene in a way. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, disappointing all around. And will there be a return to the gorilla suited performer? I mean, no. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Okay. They'll be back. Um, We'll love it. I mean, they keep trying, right? They keep trying to recapture that magic. Like just look at something like Dwayne Johnson's Rampage. He has a gorilla friend in that one, too. Yeah, but it's not a guy in a suit. No, it's not a guy in a suit. It's not the same. It's CGI. I That's know, but they, they can't realize that what people want is a guy in a suit. I mean, we've been saying it for years. The silent majority is with us. We want men in gorilla suits. And, you know, we mentioned Bob Burns in passing. If anybody wants to see one of his great gorilla performances, check him out as the main gorilla in the Ghostbusters live action TV show. From the 60s. Yes, not the real Ghostbusters of the cartoon called itself. It's the Ghostbusters where they like ride around in a jalopy and like one of them has like one of those pinwheels on his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he was a gorilla in every episode. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Alexander Roth. And it goes, Daffy versus Donald. Hey, guys. Will, is Whit Stillman right? Is Donald Duck better than Daffy? Donald Duck might have been a Nazi in a dream, but at least he never made Space Jam 2. Well, hang on. That's not Daffy's fault. Daffy is an employee of the studio. A movie that you, Will Sloan, said was running for the worst movie ever made. (laughs) Boy, those are harsh words, aren't they? And I stand by them. I have some movies to show you, Will. I know it can be hard to admit defeat, but (laughs) try to be a bigger man after you dried your tears. I could name you 10 classic Daffy Duck cartoons right now. I could maybe name like one Donald Duck cartoon and it's Der Fuhrer's face. Can I play the devil's advocate here? That Donald is really popular in Europe in a way that he is not here. Oh, he's a genius in France. <laughs> That's right, saying. like Jerry Lewis. Yeah. And you do love Jerry Lewis, That's don't true. you? Like, did you ever read the Karl Barks comics? No. Yeah, me neither. And in the cartoons, like DuckTales, Daffy was minimized because Disney had a rule that their core characters couldn't do stuff in like TV shows and stuff like that. So Scrooge got all the fun. But in the comics, Donald was a figure that did all the adventure stuff, blah, blah, blah. And to that, I say Daffy is still better because he's pathetic and uh, much funnier. Da- yeah, Daffy is way funnier. And Donald's voice is really annoying. But isn't Donald like the blue collar guy? He's the one that gets to like be angry. That like that is his, I feel, trademark thing, right? Where he's like, Arr! What the hell are you talking about? He's part of the McDuck fortune. Yes, that's true. But um, his uncle gives him not a penny for his work. He'll take care of his nephews, but that's it. I mean, if you want a funny duck who's angry, I, I got Daffy, Daffy, Daffy for you. <laughs> I can't do the uh, Daffy Duck. Woohoo, uh, woohoo, woohoo. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Will's got it down pat. Yeah, Daffy is clearly the better character. Like, come on. Like, that's not even a contest. There's a lot of stuff that Whit Stillman has said over the years that I disagree with. Yes. Uh, although his hardcore defense of Woody Allen. Um, is, does he have a hardcore defense of Woody Allen? Oh, yeah, he's a huge Woody guy. He's oh, pro Woody. Boy. But yeah, Daffy forever. Um, just watch Looney Tunes back in action to really get that pure Daffy. Watch Duckamuck. Show me one cartoon that's better that uh, Donald made than Duckamuck. Or any character, frankly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I, and not only is Duckamuck the best cartoon, but it is a perfect representation of Daffy as a character in my favorite form. 
So that's it for letters this week. Thank you very much for sending us one. And if you're listening and you have a question or comment for us, send it at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. What are we doing on our Patreon this week, Will? Well, speaking of Daffy Duck, we are revisiting one of our favorite films of the century. <laughs> we saw Space Jam 2 recently, and that inspired us to want to give another look to Joe Dante's Looney Tunes back in action. I asked Will last week, hey, you want to do an episode on Space Jam 2? And like every podcaster in the world, he's like, I already booked, already got my Space Jam 2 episode. <laughs> you know, it's grist for the mill. That's right. So I said, uh, you know what? I want to watch uh, Joe Dante's Looney Tunes back in action. Both of us like it. So it's a chance to talk about it for 30 minutes. So check it out at patreon.com slash the important cinema club. And if you're listening to this on Thursday when this is released, I just want to remind you that Gold Ninja Video is doing a telethon for the Indiegogo that I am running. And the telethon will probably be about 14 hours, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We're going to play movies. We're going to have more guests than any streaming thing that I've ever so had. So it's going to be, uh, I'm, I'm a layman here. Uh, Mr. DeClue, I have some questions about the telethon. No so uh, first of all, what is your Indiegogo campaign? My Indiegogo campaign is to raise funds to do scans of prints that I will then release on Blu-ray, which at this point include a Poverty Row Western, a Bruce Ploitation film, and a few other things that are within the stretch goal because we already made the original goal that I had for a bunch of movies you can find the names on the Indiegogo page include Skip Tracer and Moturn Media and Shock Marathon Classic Freaky Farley but we could do more so Mr. DeClue you're telling me that we're going to get a Bruce Lee imitator film yes. a Bruce exploitation film if you will indeed that's never been released in widescreen never in widescreen okay yes. well we need people to donate for that yeah a, a Western that does not exist in high def anywhere and that that features, I'm just going to say, an important cinema club favorite behind the camera. We have talked about this Western. Yes. On the show. So yes. you, you can go scavenger hunting. Uh, you know, I'm also going to say. Don't give too much away. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not going to give any more away. Uh, so, Mr. Dick, <laughs> I'm just so excited. <laughs> Isn't it crazy that like we can do this movie and that no one has released oh, it in high I'm, definition? I'm so excited. And then, M Mr. DeClue, you're telling me that if we get to the extreme stretch goal, like, we can get a scanner ourselves. Yes, we can get a scanner, which will allow me to do this much more often and to do more scans because it would just involve buying or borrowing the prints that I would then scan instead of the, you know, uh, $4,000 it costs to do it through a lab. Credible forgotten corners of film history that you, sir, are preserving. So you've got this this telethon coming up, mm -hmm. just like Jerry Lewis before you. Yes. And it's on Twitch and it runs for like 14 hours and you're showing movies. Yep, they're all kind of like Gold Ninja Video adjacent movies, including a screening of The Revenge of Samson, which is a film I subtitled myself. Does not exist anywhere with English subtitles. I found a French dubbed widescreen print of this Indonesian Conan the Barbarian, uh, very gory film. I subtitled it and will be playing during the stream. And you have special guests, you said. Like, yes, like, I do. Am, am I going to be there? Yeah, you will be there. Whoa. We will play Jackie Chan games. <laughs> we will play Jackie Chan games. That's right. Well, folks, if you've ever wanted to see me play a video, game you <laughs> there will you go. and obviously that's what people are hungering for these days people love it on twitch we're gonna have all our favorite guests will matt and charlie show up of course they will <laughs> they got it. it's legally obliged and we love seeing those guys will we also have a live video commentary with the no such thing as a bad movie crew yes over parole violators a great film especially one to just kind of talk over because it's mostly long action scenes with repetitive musical loops that play. Well, what's important to remember is this is a telethon and yes. you should donate generously sell your worldly goods that you have only keep the things you need to survive and then give me the money contribute that money you don't 
neat. You know, there's great perks. You can get all the out of print Gold Ninja video stuff. Uh, you can also uh, buy a subscription for the next six titles, but you don't need to do that. You can just drop a couple thousand just right in there as a contribution. Mr. DeClue, when you put out your copy of The Dragon Lives Again, mm -hmm. the very first Gold Ninja video release, which sold out in two days. Yes. I, I didn't even know about Gold Ninja at the time. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get a copy. I couldn't listen to the great commentary by you and me. <laughs> yes, that's uh, true. But if I, if I donate to the Kickstarter, could I have another chance of getting that? Yes. This will be the last time as well. Last no time. more okay. of this because every time I put The Dragon Lives out Again out, I'm like, a company has to release this at some point. Nobody has stepped up yet. So this is it, folks. Yeah. So anyway, this is what I was saying. And sorry, the date and time again? It is on July 31st, starting at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And it's going to be happening at twitch.tv slash important cinema club. So check that out in the show notes, too, I assume. Yes, there will be a link right there for you to click, as well as just to click and then put in your payment information and know that we will be saving movies that... Oh my God! Me no one, Will, no one is doing this. No one is doing this. Me and Will were just talking about another one that I haven't even mentioned that could oh, be on the schedule, oh and God. it is wild. I'm, <laughs> I'm genuinely excited, folks. I don't endorse things that I'm not excited for, folks. But here you go. He is endorsing the Gold Ninja video. So, what are we doing next week, Will? Well, from the ridiculous to the sublime, and the racist, and and the racist. One thing that we like almost as much as gorilla suits is uh, the wind in the trees. <laughs> you know, one of the classic, one of the classic things that makes cinema an art form. So we are going all the way back to cinema's birth, and finally talking about the father of cinema, for God's sake, D.W. Griffith. Yep, that's right. We'll be talking about intolerance. Will we learn that racism is bad from the man who made Birth of a Nation? And we will also be talking about his final directorial effort, Abraham so Lincoln. So I was very surprised that one of us has not seen intolerance. Yes, this is incredibly embarrassing. In my, like, top five biggest blind spots. Maybe my number one biggest blind spot, frankly. Intolerance. So that's what we'll be watching next week. And until then, my name is Justin Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, I was revisiting some of our favorite auteurs recently. I watched a movie by Roger Corman. And I watched a movie by Jess Franco. Mm -hmm. Good ones, right? Well, I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, so with Roger Corman, I revisited a film that I last saw when I was a teenage boy. Remember, I just said I haven't seen Intolerance, but I've seen this movie twice. <laughs> yes. It is 1955's Five Guns West. And what is notable about this movie is that it was Roger Corman's directorial debut. He had produced a few movies before that, including a film called The Fast and the Furious. Five Guns West was the first one that he directed, and he shot it in a week. You know, it's a cowboy movie. It's pretty boring. Yeah, the only interesting thing that is associated with it is that Roger Corman vomited on the side of the road on the first day of filming before he got the set because he was so nervous. And then by the time it was over, he knew how to direct. And uh, two things of note about this film. Uh, the cinematographer is Floyd Crosby, David Crosby's father. Oh. And what's great about Floyd Crosby is he was another old timer. He shot Taboo, the F.W. Murnau, Robert Flaherty silent film, won an Oscar for it. Mm -hmm. He worked with Orson Welles on the aborted film It's All True. Uh, he also shot High Noon in the early wow. 1950s. So pretty good career. How did he end up shooting for Roger Corman? I have no idea, but it must have seemed like a come down. But actually, he had a great career out of this going on because obviously Corman worked with a number of different DPs, but Floyd Crosby was his default DP. Hmm. So he, did he shoot the Poe films? He shot some of them. He shot yeah. The Pit and the Pendulum. I forgot uh, Nick Rogue shot uh, the most famous one, The Mask of Red Death. That's right. But he... but. Floyd Crosby also shot X, the man with the X-ray eyes and a number of other ones that, you know, and love. So I think that I think that's a pretty great career, frankly. It's like 
must have seemed like slumming, but he ended up directing some of the most beloved exploitation movies of the 60s. Out of yeah, it. that's a great career. And as we always say, cinematographers are the ones that when you look at the entirety of their, you know, working life, there's going to be highs and it's usually going to end in lows because that, you know, cinematographers, as they age, I feel like uh, producers, filmmakers feel they're not in touch anymore with what the young kids, the style that they want. It's interesting when you look at the 70s cinematographers, mm-hmm. like they all start, they all start, first of all, directing Ratfinka Boo Boo. And then they get their big break and they're being a cinematographer on like five easy pieces or Dog Day Afternoon or, you know, one of the big ones. And then in the 80s, they shoot Scrooged, you know, good, good, good gig, you know, respectable. And then in the 90s, they're shooting like Whoopi Goldberg movies. And then in the 2000s, sitcoms, sitcoms or like direct to video stuff. But the thing is that like and that happened to every cinematographer, even Carl Freund. Didn't he end up uh, shooting I Love Lucy? And he's the one who created the multicam setup. Well, I mean, that that's great that he created it. Yes, I mean, not but bad. But he still, ended up on sitcoms. Yes, the yeah, guy. I mean, he that, directed The Mummy. Not and, those expressionist touches yes. that we knew from his great work. I mean, he basically ghost directed Dracula. Oh, did he? he? I didn't know that. Well, I mean, I, maybe I'm wrong. That's that may be some Todd Browning slander. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So anyway, the other movie I watched recently was Jess Franco. Fall of the Eagle, also known as Night of the Eagle. Woof. <laughs> yes. Uh, when you came over to my house a week or two ago, that was in the stack of movies you brought. And I was like, I already have that. Yeah. <laughs> and your interest was peaked only because it's like a big budget Jess Franco film and Christopher Lee's in it. And so is Mark Hamill, which is very funny in a very serious World War II film. Also, a third star, Ramon Estevez, who is the- <laughs> Ramon Estevez? Yes, he's the forgotten Sheen brother. Mm. He, he is Charlie and Emilio's brother. I mean, it goes Joe, Martin, I guess Ramon. <laughs> yeah, and then Charlie. I was interested to watch this movie because, you know, in the late 60s, Jess Franco was making all of these Harry Allen Towers movies, big-ish budget movies. Yeah, with, and they weren't good. Yeah, you know they, that. They, they were boring. But then in the 70s and 80s, got increasingly impoverished his movies became increasingly pornographic just lena romay so they got better (laughs) yeah lena romay being naked in a house and then in the late 80s he made faceless yeah and that was the big like return to budget in that he had a crew again and he had a couple of kind of stars in it he had more than one lens other than that one zoom lens on the camera and this brought him back and then he made this world war ii movie which has i mean if you told me that jess franco didn't direct it if you told me that some hack hack made it i would say sure and very disappointing but i mean every jess franco movie will be given a specialty blu-ray release yes i mean i don't think this is a special edition because full moon put it out it's just the movie it's very much but i mean it's it's beautiful it's mastered from the negative i mean listen i have a copy of dracula jess franco's christopher lee dracula which is not good boring yeah but Uh, but i would watch it five times before i watch (laughs) night of the eagle again well you know what i'm glad that we could go into um your continued adventures with your favorite auteurs